I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86th Texas Legislature. This week, rural Texas at a crossroads. Our agricultural history is undeniable. Our ranching tradition is distinct. Our small town culture and values and ideology are unchanged. But the reality of our population today, the growth of it and the disbursement of it, suggests a turning of the page. Texas is, in 2019, an urban state. Six of the 20 biggest cities in the United States are here, more than any place else. More than 80% of us live east of Interstate Highway 35. In rural communities and rural counties, from north to south and east to west, kids are growing up and moving away, rarely to return. There's no question that all the issues in the rural portfolio public and higher ed, healthcare, transportation, economic development, broadband, have their challenges. But challenges are also opportunities. Even in decline, communities and counties in rural Texas are still home to millions and millions of people, more than the populations of entire states, and are still on the receiving end of billions and billions of dollars from our biennial budget. Rural Texans have enormous political power. Ask Ted Cruz and Ken Paxton who saved their bacon in 2018. And there's good news from all across rural Texas in the form of emerging best practices. Superintendents, healthcare pros, small business owners, renewable energy entrepreneurs, all working smart and working hard to figure out under the circumstances how to survive and thrive. This week's guest has the backs of those can-do rural Texans at the Capitol and, in fact, is one himself. State Representative for Price, Republican of Amarillo, is a fourth-generation native of the Panhandle. And the district he represents is made up of five counties whose residents are precisely the kind of people who, on the one hand, are fighting hard to preserve the way of life they've always known, but are finding, on the other, that the realities of the modern world are making it difficult each day. Few elected officials speak about the problems of and possibilities for rural Texas with as much empathy or authority as Representative Price, who presides over the all-powerful Calendars Committee this session. Chairman and I sat down to talk all things rural on the morning of March 14th, day 66 of the 140th. of Order is supported by Texas Electric Cooperatives, representing the interests of 75 electric co-ops with more than 3 million rural members across the state. Learn more at texas-ec.org. And by the Water Grows Initiative. Irrigated agriculture is essential to growing our economy, farms, and the future. Discover the significant strides farmers are making in water and natural resources conservation, to benefit the lives of Texans at watergrows.org. And WGU Texas, changing higher education for the better from the state's smallest towns to the largest cities. Visit wgu.edu slash Texas. Would you move to rural Texas now? If, if you were coming to Texas for the first time or if you lived in a big city in Texas given everything you know about rural Texas, would you move to rural Texas voluntarily? Of course. Because? 
the quality of life, um, lack of congestion, the ability to uh, to have a more reasonable cost of living. Um, a lot of rural communities have excellent schools. They've got great abundance of natural resources. Um, I love the outdoors. Um, I love the interaction with the community that you have in a in a small community. So for me, rural Texas is just different. It's very different, and so it's uh, right. it's a natural fit. And so yeah, I'm attracted to that. Maybe it's because I grew up in rural Texas, but right. it's very much uh, it's very appealing to me. To the degree that you can stand back from it, you see what I see, which is all the blessings of rural Texas. Correct. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to visit. It's a great place to live. But you also understand the challenges. Oh, sure. There's challenges growing up in rural Texas, and certainly today, um, you know, they're amplified to some degree, uh, at least down here at the state capitol, and, and, and certainly with the, uh, the laws that are debated. Uh, I told a group of 4-H students in my office this morning, yeah. because it's 4-H day at the capitol, right. that, you know, uh, so often at the state capitol, we have uh, debates on the House floor um, that center around urban versus rural that was the, divides. Chairman, that was the real fight over the years and years that preceded our arrival, mine and yours, in the Capitol. It wasn't liberal versus conservative right. or R versus D. Uh-huh. It was urban versus rural. Yeah, well, that's what I was telling them. I said, you know, there's a lot of Republican versus Democrat partisan issues that make the headlines, but by and large, uh, right. a lot of the arguments or debates about how laws should be crafted and passed center around how they are going to affect a rural versus an urban area. Yeah. Do you think rural Texas resents the attention and love that urban Texas gets from the legislature? No. I think uh, rural Texas would like to be left alone. Uh, I don't think— It's the opposite. We don't want more (laughs) government and more help. We want less government. We want to be left alone. I agree. I think that's the attitude. But when you look at the statistics, Chairman, and I just pulled a few to compare rural and urban to understand the nature of the challenges— Unemployment rate in Texas, rural has got a higher unemployment rate than urban. Annual wage, on average, is about $14,000 more per year in urban Texas than rural, or in, or in Texas overall, I should say, than in uh, rural Texas. The uninsured rate is 50% higher in rural Texas than it is statewide. Maternal deaths per 10,000 is about double in rural Texas than statewide. I could go on. Sure. There were a whole bunch of metrics or measures that get to the quality of life question you're asking and also get to the spend that the state is willing to, to allocate to rural or opportunities that rural folks have to access the same services that the rest of the state has where rural Texas is simply behind through no fault of its own. So how does, how does somebody in rural Texas not look at those statistics and resent what the rest of the state is getting and rural is not? Well, there's certainly a trade-off. I don't think anybody, you know, in rural Texas wants the state to be homogenous, to all look the same, right. to be the same. I think, for instance, healthcare is a great example. Um, you, you quoted a couple of statistics, and I'm, I'm aware of those and others that, that, you know, make it difficult to live in rural Texas and access the same quality health care that you are going to receive in urban Texas. Right. Things uh, can help that situation, the development of telemedicine, uh, maybe rural broadband to create better access. And, and you've been an advocate for that. I yes, know. I yeah. have. And I think, you know, attracting uh, healthcare professionals to underserved areas is something we've been working on in the legislature. We'll continue to work on. So, right. yes, there are challenges. There are trade-offs. I mean, uh, you know, I'm on the redistricting committee, and we actually had a, uh, a fellow testify before the committee that recently 
I guess, had analyzed kind of the population divide in the state yep. and said that 87% of the population in Texas lives east of I-35. That's an even higher number than I thought. That's amazing. If you think about that, 87%? That's what he said. Nine out of every 10 Tex- Texans. And, of course, there are rural populations <laughs> east of I-35. Correct, sure. But it makes a point that the part of the state where you're from, the vast part of the state, west of I-35, only 10% of the population Which makes it really challenging, not just not right. just practically, but it makes it challenging politically because, obviously, that is going to translate into the numbers of representatives and Senate members right. who live in areas that are more heavily populated. And if you, if you draw, so people are aware of the implications of this, if you draw legislative districts on the basis of population, that means that all of you in rural Texas, west of I-35, are going to suddenly have much larger districts in order to get to that number, it's going to require you to have to travel across. I mean, I think about um, Drew Springer's district, which has some unspeakable number of counties in it, right, for him to, to, to cover and to represent. And if you're faithfully representing your constituents, one of the problems with the population disbursement at redistricting time is that it forces you to travel sure. a significantly larger distance to get from point to point to cover everybody. I think it's a blessing and a curse how fast Texas is growing uh, as a state just right. in terms of population because with roughly 29 million people statewide and most of it being concentrated in these suburban areas around metropolitan cities, it is challenging for, um, you know, it's challenging for those of us that live in a rural part of the state to keep up uh, in terms of, you know, prioritizing legislation that affects those areas. It's it's difficult to uh, draw the attention to some of the issues that are important to rural Texas. Um, but like I said, um, even though our districts are going to get larger, yep. um, you know, it's still a wonderful place and it's a uh, it's unique and it is true Texas. And I am uh, proud of it. It raises the question of whether and I want to get into issues here in a second, but since you brought up representation, it raises the question of whether rural Texas has an adequate voice at the legislature if the majority of the issues revolve around urban areas and suburban areas. Do the rural legislators have a hard time getting acknowledged, listened to, at moments when we talk about public education or we talk about health care? You all have a serious agenda that you're trying to carry on behalf of your folks, but it's really the other parts of the state that get the love. It is, uh, it's it's challenging, but it's not, you know, it should never be boiled down to something so simple as urban versus rural, because I really don't think my colleagues that live in urban areas are out to get the rural folks or no, vice versa. But, 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 it's, but the point is that these are choice dollars and not referendum dollars on all these issues. It's not rural Texas versus not rural Texas. Any dollar that goes to rural doesn't go to something else. <laughs> That's true. And I think the uh, reality that I am constantly reminding some of my colleagues about is where rural Texas fits into the state's economy largely centers around big drivers in our budget, energy, agriculture, agribusiness, right. the food, fuel, and fiber, the energy that really propels Texas and, and helps the Houstons and Dallases and Austins Oh, oh look, state if, I, if I enjoy, a, if I right enjoy fruit or vegetable uh, <laughs> with my dinner every night, it didn't just materialize out of nowhere. Right. Rural Texas provided it in all likelihood as rural Texas provides so many other things that we so in it's the good big for cities everybody. take for granted. It's right? good for everybody. Um, and, you know, having a rural speaker might have been uh, you don't want to talk about that, no. But but there it's were a, a bunch of rural candidates for speaker. I think we do have point. a rural speaker, actually. Oh, is, is 
Angleton, Angleton, Angleton is rural. Is, uh, I, it's, it's rural compared to like the Fifth Ward. I mean, what is it? What, <laughs> how, how is Angleton rural in a literal sense? I guess Angleton is ruraler. Matagorda County, Brazoria County. Those okay, are those well, he represents area. There well, you go. All right, <laughs> so we, we can spend a whole time. So back on healthcare. So you mentioned healthcare. You formerly chaired the Public Health Committee. This is an issue that you actually know quite a lot about, have thought a lot about. You've done work on mental health. You've done work on opioids in both mm-hmm. a select committee capacity. Since 2010, Texas has led the nation in rural hospital closures. More than a dozen in the last decade have closed. This continues to be a huge problem. You know, it's called out often as a maternal mortality associated issue in the sense that women who have babies, women who are about to have babies, women who've had babies have farther to travel now in many instances to get the kind of care that they come to expect and that they legitimately need. But it's a problem really all across rural Texas to have this many providers go away. Is it, it absolutely not? is. And right. it's... it's uh, Who's to blame? It's hard to you know, blame any one factor. I mean, I guess if you want to look across the board, there's probably some institutions that that weren't necessarily in the best position to continue to provide services, and maybe they are to blame, you know, but I think by and large... You mean from an economic standpoint? Yeah, from an economic standpoint. I I think the, the reality, though, is we have threatened the safety net or network of rural hospitals by creating... Um, I guess, a financing structure that that doesn't always recognize their unique patient mix. So, for instance, rural populations typically serve uh, a higher percentage of underinsured or uninsured, a higher percentage of Medicaid populations, uh, typically an older uh, population, sometimes more acute care and more chronic services are required, and they typically see more folks in urgent or emergent care. So it's not just the volume of business that they might do, but it's also the nature of that. And business. the type, of, yes, correct. Yeah. Um, we have an access to coverage problem. We both now called out the fact that a lot of people in rural Texas are uninsured more than the state in the main. We also have an access to care problem in that a number of rural counties are in a doctor shortage situation. Yeah. So many of those counties are considered health professional shortage areas by the federal government. I think there are 35 counties in the state of Texas that have no doctors at all. I'm guessing those are rural counties, not urban counties. Right. There are 80 counties that have no psychiatrist, that have no surgeon, that have no gynecologist. That in and of itself creates a problem. I think there's actually over 154 counties or 157. It's, it's over 150 that have no licensed psychiatrists in the entire county. 150, that's more than half the counties in the state. Correct. Yeah. It's, uh, so it's those really, numbers are actually up from the last time I've seen them measured significantly. It is, it is a real problem in rural Texas um, to attract physicians right. of all stripes to, to right. their um, neighborhoods. And, and, you know, it's, it's tough, but I think there are ways we can, we can help improve that situation. Tell me some of those. I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, telemedicine helps. Uh, we passed a bill last session, yeah. um, which, which really removed one of the largest barriers. It wasn't so much the software and the technology, because that's existed for a long time. It was having that service be reimbursable to an insurance provider. Right. Now, that, that you know, doesn't help if somebody's not <laughs> insured, and it doesn't help if you don't actually have broadband access in some communities and that can t- provide And let's talk that. about that. So the last statistics I've seen, one out of every four rural Texans lacks access to broadband infrastructure, which is 25%. I went into journalism not to do math. I can do that math. <laughs> And that compares to 2% of urban residents. 
So 2% of urban residents don't have access to broadband infrastructure, but 25% of rural Texans don't have access. You can't have telemedicine if you don't have the telepart. Right. Yeah, so right? we've we put one piece of the puzzle in place, and now I and others are working on the second piece. What's the obstacle? This is my, my mystery always, because as a matter of principle, you wouldn't deny people access to water or power, but you're denying them access to broadband, which is effectively a utility at this point in terms of the basic services that are made possible by broadband and are made impossible by the lack of broadband, right? So what is the problem here? Cost. Cost is a big problem. Whose cost? It's the cost to install uh, the fiber necessary to provide broadband in the areas where it needs to reach because by definition, rural Texas is rural. So Homes are, are spread out all across large regions. Some schools have pulled down federal dollars to actually provide that access um, and have that infrastructure developed um, for them, but it's just regional. Um, I think we need to look broader. Uh, maybe I know that, that Chairman Kimple has a bill. I know that Chairman uh, Ashby, um, I know that, that uh, Representative Doc Anderson has a bill. I think Rep. King may have a bill. I think, I think that's correct. And I have a bill creating a governor's council that right. would actually help identify solutions in a more efficient, cost-effective way to provide right. this uh, access. Uh, so, so, you know, I think there's a lot of efforts right now to identify and do that. But I think the biggest impediment has been the cost of it. But if you think about it, there are still millions of people who live in rural Texas. From a telecommunications company standpoint, the investment is really a one-time investment. There's some maintenance stuff. But they're building an entire new customer base. If I'm a telecommunications company and I see millions and millions of people in rural Texas, more than the populations of entire other states, as potential customers for my service, and if I'm the only one who provides it, it's effectively a monopoly out there, why wouldn't I want to invest that money on the front end to reap rewards on the back end? Well, I can't do the cost analysis uh, necessarily, but I've been told that it's it's prohibitively expensive to actually lay Even it down. in 2019, when the technology is so much easier and cheaper to access, even today, it's prohibitively expensive, according to the telecoms. Well, that's what I'm told. Yeah. What about a plan similar to what we're hearing in public education? This gets back to the question of how you uh, create more access to care in these communities. So, uh, I've talked to Chairman Huberty and others in the public education realm about the possibility of incentivizing the best teachers to teach in the worst school districts. So what if you did kind of a, a, a similar deal where somehow the state said, we have a shortage of doctors in rural Texas. We're going to create incentives for doctors to locate in rural Texas. And maybe it's a question of forgiving medical school loans or some other kind of incentive that would create a pipeline of the best medical professionals to the parts of the state that need it the most. I think it works. And and we have done that uh, in the past, created some loan repayment programs that include professionals in, in the healthcare yeah. fields of all different varieties so that they will work in those communities. Um, it, it, it's one of the legs of the stool that has to be solidified for yeah. a local rural community to survive. So education, healthcare, resources like water, those are important. And if you shore those up, those com- those communities economically can survive. Right. But so, otherwise, it's a real challenge. So the creation of a medical school in a place like Huntsville, Sam Houston State, which was a topic with some controversy associated with it, right. but it appears now that that is happening, right? Correct. That's probably a help because if you have people who come to Huntsville to go to medical school, in theory, getting them there is a predictor to some degree of their ability to remain there. That's right? correct. Yeah, a lot of residents will will or you know stay where they're trained, right. and and that's that's not anecdotal. That's actually we know that been to be proven. The case. Right. And you know, I know that for instance, where I live in Amarillo, the the Texas Tech Medical School and the pharmacy school that's there has been not just 
useful by way of a pipeline for professionals right. to locate there, but has been a real economic engine in terms of development and uh, the economic impact is is huge annually to the local community. So I think it's a win-win there and uh, other communities are, are doing the same thing. I think this uh, school in Huntsville will produce a lot of fruit and yep. we'll see that. You have done, you by which I mean the legislature, royal, the royal you, <laughs> have done a bunch of work over the last couple of sessions on graduate medical education, GME stuff investments in making medical schools possible, but in recognizing that it is residencies and residency slots that are ultimately the first step along the road to creating more docs. Could you not tie some kind of commitment to serve these underserved areas to GME funding? I think so. I think that's possible. We haven't done a lot of that in the past, but I think incentives are necessary because, as you mentioned, you know, the, the rural part of our state supports the rest of the state. And, right. and we do need incentives to, uh, to entice not only, you know, manufacturers and retailers and businesses, right. but healthcare professionals, educators, and, and other professionals to those areas. And I think that's a great, great start. Let's talk about how this issue relates to an issue that is one of the top agenda items in the session, and that's the property tax rate rollback. Uh, our, our reporting at the Tribune of late has suggested that uh, not only because of the property tax issue, but because of Medicare cuts and a growing number of uninsured patients, rural hospital districts in Texas are worried that if you pass some kind of a rollback rate reduction, that is going to create a problem in rural Texas, that small healthcare providers will be forced to scale back services. You've heard that sure. there is a connect between the property tax reform proposals in play now and the end user on the healthcare. Sure. Side. No, I've, so, I've heard so what about, does that worry you? Uh, of course. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, we want sound and responsible property tax reform. Right. Nobody wants to pay more property taxes. Uh, that's correct. Right. And, and we recognize, I think broadly uh, as a body that, yeah. that there's, issues with our current uh, state of affairs with the current rates folks have to pay and the escalation of them especially in certain areas of the state right so it does worry me that that you know a one-size-fits-all approach sometimes will have negative consequences on certain entities like a hospital district and a rural community or frankly another one that is of consequence to you all is uh, community college districts you know sure. the, the main he- higher ed opportunity in most rural communities is the community college. Uh, more than 50% of higher ed enrollment in the state of Texas is community yeah, colleges. Most children, or actually most students, I should say, um, you know, in Texas now get their start at a local community college. At a community college. college. And it is the community colleges that have also raised their hands and said, wait a minute, if you limit our ability to raise revenue through the community college districts, we may have to increase tuition rates. And often the people who go to community colleges are at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder and can least afford to pay more tuition. That's the challenge. We want to find a good balance between doing what is responsible from a from a tax reform or relief standpoint, but also not have the adverse consequence where you're creating an environment where we all go home and somebody says, well, thanks for you know, providing tax relief on one hand, but our college tuition 
at our local community college just went up 30%. So it's a pig and a snake. It moves down the pipe. <clears> it's a fluid else, situation. Right? Yeah. I mean, there is not, uh, there's probably not, you know, a, a magic point where all folks are happy on one end or the other, but I think we can strike a balance. Um, and, and I'm hopeful with that, that, yeah. that, uh, you know, we're not going to be putting community colleges in a box or a situation where they can't continue to thrive without raising their tuition to a significant degree or something like that. Right. So tell me just cause we're talking about it. Are you for the two and a half percent rollback rate? Well, I'm not, Gonna, I'm not. I'm going to withhold my judgment until I see the final bill because I think that two and a half percent works for some communities. I think two and a half percent is a is a an aggressive goal, but I don't think it's appropriate for everybody under all cases at all times. So I mean, I think that you know there's lots of discussion right now with regard to the bill, with regard to whether or not public safety is exempted. Are we going to exempt fire and police? Yes, correct. And whether or not, for instance, community colleges, uh, if there are no exemptions. Uh, at all, yeah. You know, it's it's hard to stick at, at a at a low number like two and a half percent if the number is higher. But you have, I mean, I'm sorry, if the number is lower, but you have some of those exemptions, it's much more workable. If it's higher. Uh, you don't handcuff, you know, your local taxing entities to the same degree, right. because I do believe that uh, we need reform. I honestly, yeah. you know, I'm not really opposed to two and a half percent. I just want to make sure it works for the folks that, that uh, you know, we're going to ask to stay under the, those those rates. I love good legislation at the Texas Capitol. More carve outs than a Thanksgiving <laughs> turkey, right? We're not we're going to we're going to pass a bill, but we're going to make sure that everybody does something different because somebody came to us and said, please exempt us or do. And look, and I, I get it. I mean, I think that's the challenge, yeah, right? Sure it is. It's one size. So stay with education for a second on the community college piece and more broadly on education. You cited earlier there are some really great rural public schools stipulated. The fact is rural education, whether it's at the K-12 level or in the community college or four-year level, has its challenges too. Access, affordability, to name two, right? Right. So how do you come at that? What do you do about that? How many school districts are in your – I have over two dozen school districts. In your five In the counties. house district. In your I house district. That's right. correct. And how many community colleges do you have in your – uh, two. Two, okay. So when your residents are looking, residents of your district are looking at um, their options from a public school standpoint and from a higher ed standpoint, are there enough options? Are they good options? At the higher ed level, is there an affordability question? Do they have problems sometimes finding a way out of the district and to four-year schools where it's harder than ever to get into college without bribing people? Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm in a really uh, fortunate spot with regard to education where I live. And uniquely, um, you know, where, where I'm located in the Texas Panhandle, I have, you know, several community colleges, one of which is Amarillo College, right. uh, situated 18 miles from its home campus to West Texas A&M, which is a branch campus at the University in of Canyon. Down in Canyon, right. it's part of the A and M system, and uh, it roughly has probably you know somewhere between ten and twelve thousand students enrolled. Um, and and the reality is, I this is the first time I've ever heard this, but the president of West Texas A and M will tell Walter, anybody Walter Wendler, President Wendler, right. correct? He will tell folks, do not go into debt to come here. You should go to Amarillo College for two years and then transfer to West Texas A&M if you're going to go into debt to do it because it's not worth doing that. I think one of the biggest problems we have in, in education right now is, is, yes, you've got access issues and you've got quality issues and you've got, you know, the cost issues, but it is so easy to obtain student loans that a lot of our students, it's not really hard to get into a college you can get a loan to finance that education, but it is so expensive 
that, you know, it's really difficult for those students to afford it when they get out. Assuming that they even complete, because as you know, Chairman, four out of five Texans who enter the eighth grade in Texas public schools, six years out from high school, still have not achieved some kind of completion. So you take on all this debt and then it's a pyrrhic victory because you don't even get a degree. Right. So it's a it's right. a it's a very big challenge. I think the yeah. cost of it, I, I think. Uh, but I do live in a great area where they do work together. Yeah. And uh, I think our our, uh, our high schools and our, our uh, districts uh, work really well with our community colleges as well. And it's it's probably uh, replicated like that throughout the state. But but it works really well in our area. In rural Texas, where community college is so important. Let me come back to that is transferability an issue. We hear a lot about that as a looming issue in higher ed, that you have these folks who go to community colleges for a couple of years on the assumption that when they transfer over to a four-year, that those credits are going to be accepted by the four years. And there's a bit of a bonk that's going on right now where yeah. transferability is not working as seamlessly as was intended. What do you do about that? I think you have to address that because that's part of the graduating in four years, the affordability equation, all that comes into play. I think it's better today than it was a few years ago, but I don't think it's great. And, and rural Texas bears a large brunt of that because so yeah. much of rural Texas is educated in these schools. Right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So I think we can we can we need to make sure that that these credits are transferable. Yeah. If you're gonna take American history or, you know, English one oh one, that that you're not gonna have to take it again once you transfer. You need and those pay credits to take to it again, particularly. That's correct. So back to public ed. So I, I had Chairman Huberty this morning uh, in conversation about HP3, the House's stab at school finance, $9 billion, $6 billion to invest in school finance reform, $3 billion in property taxes. He has 85. He told me actually it was 85 on the first day. He now has more than 100 members of the House supporting him, Including of, which, me. of which you are one. How is rural Texas treated – You've seen the runs, because I've not seen the runs. <clears throat> I have seen Did you them. bring them with you? Can I have no, them? I didn't bring Will them. Will you leak them to me he, right now? He actually didn't let me leave the room with he them. Didn't? So no. That guy. Um, how does rural Texas fare in this plan? And should rural Texas be behind this plan? I think, I think rural Texas and urban Texas fare very well under this plan. Um, I think the answer to that is, is yes, they should support it. And yes, they are favorably treated because the rising tide is lifting all ships under this plan theory. And I think the the hard thing is not everybody is treated the same because everybody's unique with regard to how they're currently funded. But if you're going to raise, for instance, the basic allotment, um, that is going to be a beneficial thing. I think he told me something like 69 districts out of what we have in Texas, which is uh, yeah, over a thousand, twelve hundred or so, right? Uh, you know, are are negatively impacted based on what they actually receive today, and the cumulative total of their change uh, is something close to ten million dollars. Now, you got to keep in mind we fund public education. I think it's close to a billion dollars a week in Texas. So right, we're about talking six, about, a, about $60 billion we're spending right now. A yeah. very small number. Yeah. And so I think by and large, it, you know, and I've never loved, this is the thing, everybody talks about the runs. It's an awful way to make policy if all you do is look to see how a particular district is affected. Now, the reality politically is a lot of House members have one or two districts. So they're never going to vote for a proposal that's negatively impacting their district, even if it makes all the policy well, but, sense but in the world. Representative Democracy Chairman would have you represent your district, your legislative district, which has in it a number of school districts. And if your school districts are negatively impacted, how are you 
representing your district by voting for something that negatively impacts your constituents. It's very hard oh, to sure. see the larger good if you represent a legislative district. You know, in, in school finance, that's right. been one of the areas that, that I guess is uh, good and bad for someone like me or in my position because I've got property, wealthy property, poor, large, small. I've got districts of all different varieties. So they're almost uniformly uh, different. I mean, different no matter what the proposal is. Now in this one, uh, they're all going to be um, favorably impacted. Better, better off yes. as, as, as a result of it. Correct. Um, are you optimistic that you guys are going to get this done? I'm very optimistic. I mean, fact is, after the last election, I'd say if you don't get it done, they're coming for you next time. It's the most comprehensive plan I've seen since right. I've been here, and I think the uh, the reality is um, Texans want us to do better. And, and that rural speaker of yours made it clear that it was his priority. And and he's behind it 100%. 100%. So let's talk about the economy. We, we touched upon this a little bit earlier in talking about broadband. We do polling all the time here at the Tribune in partnership with the University of Texas, and we did an entire poll devoted to the future of rural Texas last fall uh, in advance of a conference that we did that you generously participated in talking about these issues. And we asked uh, residents of rural Texas to rate as excellent and good, poor and terrible, or don't know, various aspects of life in rural Texas. Uh, opportunities for home ownership, the vast majority were excellent and good. Wages and income, not overwhelmingly so, but more saying it was excellent or good than poor or terrible. Cost of living, which you called out earlier, excellent and good overwhelmingly. Two areas in which, as we say in political terms, things were underwater were availability of jobs. More than 50% of rural residents described the availability of jobs in rural Texas as poor or terrible, and opportunities for young people, similar. That a majority of people polled said, said that. Do you disagree with those uh, characterizations? No, I don't really disagree. I think it's it's probably been a challenge for as you know long and at least in recent history as as we've been around um, that you know the 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 opportunities just aren't as numerous you know and so <clears throat> you know typically at least in the past if you didn't go into the family business or go into agribusiness or energy or something where you were going to make use of the abundant natural resources around you in a rural community your choices were somewhat limited you didn't have manufacturers and and the, the type of industry surrounding your communities that you're going to find in other areas however we're seeing that change um, we're seeing you know, the availability of economic incentives, 312 and 313 agreements attract businesses to areas where they might not normally go. I thought we hate economic incentives. I don't hate economic incentives. No? And, and communities where I live in rural Texas have taken great advantage of, rural, of, of those types of incentives to attract business that might not otherwise go but there. But don't some, don't some conservatives view economic incentives sure. uh, paid out for the purpose of attracting business to be uh, corporate welfare? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's viewed that way by some. And, you know, I guess we just have to respectfully disagree about, you know, how that's characterized, because if we didn't have them, um, you know, we wouldn't see the kind of development. I mean, look, it doesn't just happen in rural Texas. You wouldn't see Toyotas moving to Plano or Toyota moving to San Antonio. SpaceX moving to Brownsville. So right? it's it's yeah. it's everywhere, and it's actually been very uh, beneficial for, for Provided that the money you spend, the ROI is multiple right. times what you spend. That's on the, correct. On the yeah, front, it has to be done end. correctly. Sure. Uh, this gets back to the question of rural broadband. If you're a business owner or an entrepreneur, and you think, well, there's an opportunity for me to be in a place with low cost of living and great quality of life and all that. I'm going to go locate in rural Texas and start a business or move a business. Oh, wait a minute. Rural broadband is a problem. That's correct. I mean, technology is such today that it's absolutely possible, and some people prefer 
to live where they don't have to commute 45 minutes in congestion every day. They like to have wide open spaces and they can do their jobs from home or a home office or an office in a rural community, or they just like that, uh, you know, that kind of peace and quiet. Obviously, if you don't have rural broadband access, it makes doing anything, you know, telephonically or you know, through, uh, through the use of audiovisual connections, very difficult. Yeah. And so, yeah, the, the more we can advance the ball in that area, I think we'll see more opportunities in rural Texas, not just in traditional fields like healthcare, but we'll see them in other areas where people can actually work from remotely from a, a home office Well, honestly, somewhere else. I could imagine a, a, a tech startup or some other kind of, you know, small business startup seeing the real value of being in a place sure. uh, 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 in rural Texas as opposed to having to compete for office space and cost of living is so oh, much yeah. higher in the big cities, but there's this obstacle. I mean, we didn't really talk about this in the context of education, but think about the fact that I think one statistic I've seen said that 70% of students have homework every night that requires use of the internet. It's easier to apply for college these days. On, I mean, you apply, apply online. Right. If you're a parent, you want to keep up with your kids' progress in either public school uh, or lower school or in uh, higher education, all those online is required. Again, the lack of broadband creates obstacles to enjoying the same benefits that the rest of us in the state enjoy. That's correct. Yeah. Telecoms need to put up, <laughs> don't they? That's I agree with you. Yeah. And we'll do what we can here. Yeah. So let me ask you about public safety issues, which I wouldn't think necessarily would be associated with rural Texas as a major issue because I think one of the reasons you move to a small town or you move out of the big city is to avoid the kinds of big city problems that we're accustomed to. We asked in that same poll in the fall, what are the most important problems where you live? And the number one problem, almost twice the respondents for the second highest problem was drugs and crime. Mm -hmm. What don't I know about rural Texas? Is that, on the drug side, is that opioid abuse? Or is it standard drug crime? What is it? I, you know, I think a lot of what you see is um, centered around meth production, yep. um, obviously opioids and narcotics, and the illicit drug trade is, is it exists in rural Texas just like it does anywhere else. I think what you see is, one, a sensitivity to it there because you don't have as much law enforcement boots on the ground, so to speak, to actually deal with some of the issues. Um, folks can go kind of under the radar. You know, I mean, if you are in a house surrounded by 15 acres of land and you want to produce meth, it's a little easier there than it would be in an apartment in downtown Travis County. That's not exactly a billboard No, uh, 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 slogan, you know, yeah. come to rural Texas. Yeah, right. So, home of consequence-free <laughs> meth production. Yeah, I don't think it, that's what you want to do as a tourism slogan or as an economic I agree. And, and But I do think that, that you know, it it's a, you know, it's, it's a formula that some folks have thought this is what we want to do to go, you know, operate our, our illegal business undetected. And, and so, you know, in rural Texas, yeah, you've got that, you've got, uh, the same challenges you have all over the state with regard to, um, you know, narcotic addiction or alcohol abuse. You or hear this else. in your district chairman, when you go around at election time and knock on doors in, in those five counties, do people talk about this issue? Not, it's not in the top three or four. I mean, it, it, it does come up in some communities um, and it does come up in the opioid discussion uh, somewhat because, uh, you know, most of those addictions start with the use of legally prescribed drugs or through, you know, someone in their family who was legally prescribed drugs, but they self-medicated using that and then become addicted. And then that can lead to 
other types of drug addictions like heroin. Um, so it, that does occasionally come up, and, and there are pockets where the abuses are more acute or significant. So it, it does, but by and large, uh, most people are worried about their health care, their schools, their water, their, their ability to uh, maintain the way of life that they love in those communities. So public safety is part of that, but but it's probably not as large as, at least in my district, as your poll would indicate. Would have suggested. A couple more things before we wrap up. I want to ask you about transportation. You know, uh, we have a challenge in the state of Texas with as many people as we have today, 28.3 million going to 54 million by 2050. Right. Um, a lot of those people are necessarily going to be in places other than the big cities because we have no room for them in the big cities. I can speak on behalf of, a re- of <laughs> residents of the big cities saying, please don't come to the big cities. Um, they may lower those numbers west of I-35 right. between now and 2050. Do we have enough roads? Are the roads we have now good enough? Can we deal with the challenge of accommodating 50 million people or 54 million people with the transportation system we have in place? Is rural Texas being well taken care of as far as that issue goes? I think we've got a challenge there. Anytime you're going to see the kind of explosive population growth that you just quoted and our state's demographers are saying that we definitely will, you know, increase and more than double our population by, by you know, 2050, uh, that's, that's fast growth and yeah. it's hard to keep up. And so, yes, I think it's a real challenge for all of our infrastructure and, and our transportation system is one of it. So, you know, it takes a long time to do that. And I think transportation itself is going to change over the next several decades. What do you mean by that? Well, just the modes of transportation, I think, is one. I think the use of uh, vehicles that are more autonomous, both in fleet vehicles as well as personal vehicles. I think the use of air travel. I mean, I think the the way we get around will look different 25 years from well, now than about, it does today. What about something like rail, Chairman? You know, there's mm-hmm. been a debate of the last couple of sessions about the possibility of a privately funded high-speed rail Project. You People had to are, bring up something controversial. Uh, I, well, it's, I mean, if, if high-speed rail is the most controversial thing that we talk about today, you've gotten off easy. I'm still back on using meth as a tourism generator for rural Texas. Um, uh, so, so the question in rural Texas about high-speed rail has been, uh, I think there's been a little bit of FOMO, fear of missing out, right? Wait a minute, why are the big cities getting these stations and we're not seeing something uh, between there? But it's largely eminent domain. It's the question of whether uh, rail companies or, for that matter, extended off of the question of transportation to something like utilities and pipelines and right. the more mundane ways in which this conversation typically comes up. Is rural Texas getting screwed on the eminent domain front? Do you have a point of view about that? Well, I think rural Texas is very interested in eminent domain reform. Uh, certainly since I've been here, we've actually had the opportunity to strengthen eminent domain laws, but it is front and center right now. And it's not so much rail as it is pipeline centered, at least in the district that I represent. And this is a really tough issue for folks like me because who we represent are generally either in the energy industry right. or in the um, On farm hand, and ranching industry it's, it's, and private property it's, owners. Uh, mouth that feeds you meat, hand that's being bitten, right? right? I mean, it, it really difficult. is complicated for you. But I think that that there is a, a strong desire to see some, some reform and strengthen the eminent domain laws for private property owners in the district. That is one of the top three or four issues. I had folks in my office before I walked over here today um, that were literally concerned about what's happening on that front 
and 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 you know they've got a reason to be. So I think uh, I think we'll hear a lot more about it. I think we'll see some movement. I know that Representative Burns, at least in the House, has worked very hard trying to find some common ground to make some headway that that benefits everybody. Um, and and I think we'll see it. Who are you with in this case, Chairman? I will ask you directly. Are you uh, are you for the rail project or are you opposed? Uh, to oh, it. the rail project. Well, the rail project that I know about, you know, the high-speed rail project doesn't affect the district that I represent. It's yeah. not going through uh, House District 87. However, you may be in the position of casting a vote, either sure. in support of or against. Well, I always reserve until I see the final uh, piece of legislation. Oh, you're so careful. Well, and I understand they're not seeking any state money, so that's not going to be part of the budget. Uh, it's not right. part of uh, anything. Well, commit- they, they've said that. I mean, there are those who are skeptical right. of whether this project could ultimately go forward as a privately funded. But project. I am sympathetic to, you know, the plight of, you know, I, again, you know, pro- private property owners, folks that have property right. in their family for generations or whatever. I, I certainly understand their their lack of uh, excitement over seeing a development project run through their property. I understand the need, on the other hand, from a lot of folks. That so who are you with? Are you with the property owners in the case of those pipelines, or are you with the energy company? Oh, well, I'm, I'm always, if I have to choose and you're putting me on the spot, uh, I always uh, side with private property owners on these issues. Right. Um, you know, And I think there's a balance, though, you can find to make, to make sure development's not impeded, but that the process is fair for both sides. Yep. The last thing I want to ask you about is the political power of rural Texas. I'm uh, moved to observe that although the population of rural Texas is declining and is not likely to go back up, even though we do see population growth in Texas that could ultimately push more people to rural Texas, the trend line is against the population of rural counties and rural communities going back up. A population group of interest to me that is going up is the Hispanic population, just to pick it as a not exactly apples to apples. At the moment, rural Texas elects people even though its population is in decline, and the Hispanic population of Texas does not elect people by and large even though its population is on the ascent. Now, that may change. Ted Cruz and Ken Paxton are two of the many people on the ballot in 2018 who absolutely benefited from rural Texas. Without rural Texas, neither would have been elected. That's right. Right? So do you accept the premise that rural Texas, despite population declines, has enormous political power to be leveraged. And how can that political power be leveraged on behalf of the issues that we're talking about? I think your observation is correct, and I think rural Texas turned out and delivered elections for many of our statewide elected officials in this last cycle. Um, I think they were motivated. I think they they turn out. You know, folks in our our districts uh, are interested and engaged, and they turn out. Uh, The numbers just aren't always there, you know, um, to, to make... Um, a significant difference, although in this election cycle it definitely did. I think it was the margin of victory uh, for for many of the Easily. candidates. Well, those two I named, and possibly a couple of others. I agree, right. and so I think the uh, you know it's it's it, it all boils down to uh, what what's important to them at a local level and some of these issues that we're talking about. Um, you know, they're not generally found on a on a statewide ballot initiative, um, but they they voice their opinion by sending people like me or whomever is their representative or senator uh, to to be their advocate, to be their voice here, so yep. that those policies are actually advanced, heard, understood, and, uh, you know, passed into law. So, you know, I think it's uh, very, very likely that, that we will continue to see uh, rural Texas be very strong politically, even though they're not necessarily strong in numbers. Do you wonder if the Politics of rural Texas will change at some point, demographic inevitability being what it is. 
Once upon not too long a time ago, there were conservative Democrats in rural sure. Texas. Some people who today call themselves Republicans would have been a generation ago a conservative Democrat, maybe even you. These um, things change over time, they, for they sure. Do. Th those were referred to, the last of those conservative Democrats were referred to as WD-40s, right? White right. Democrats over 40. <laughs> and they were ushered out pretty much with the Republican, complete Republican takeover of the, of the legislature. But the reality is that demographic changes in the state are going to result in many more people who at least traditionally, not monolithically, set up as Democrats. And at a certain point, those numbers are going to have to break a little bit and create opportunity. I know that Beto O'Rourke traveled around, just to pick one example, during the Senate race to all 254 counties, and he would go to Mule Shoe or Die Ball or Dime Box, and I would think to myself, I hope he's getting pie in those places because <laughs> he's not going to get votes. On the other hand, he did better in rural Texas than some Democrats have done over time, and that was partly why the margin was closer is those votes actually, if they go to a Democrat, they add up quickly, and you end up as he did, getting more than 4 million votes. He didn't get all those 4 million votes in the cities. No, and listen, we in this last cycle, uh, more than I've ever seen statewide elected candidates in, in lots of different races up and down the ballot spent time in rural Texas. I remember Texas. Ted Cruz in Amarillo laid in the campaign and people saying, if Ted Cruz is in Amarillo, this laid <laughs> in the campaign... He should have that locked up. They they recognized that that you know it was an important uh, stop to make, and and certainly uh, we saw lots of activity all throughout the cycle, not just late, but in the entire time. So I'm I'm you know I don't think that's going to change. I think yeah. that is uh, that's that's a good thing for us. It's a good thing for people to recognize, and uh, I don't I don't think we'll see that drop off anytime in the near future. And and, and you don't expect that at least the conservative politics of rural Texas to change anytime I soon. Don't, I don't either. All I right. do not. Chairman, thank you very much. Thank you. Right. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Point of Order, a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, State Representative For Price, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Texas Electric Cooperatives, the Water Grows Initiative, and WGU Texas. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, tell your friends about us. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.